0: As Lisa and I worked on this, we coined this term, fun equals love, which is like super hippie scary. Hello, and welcome to the Ludicast, the
1: home of serious fun. We're brought to you by Ontario Tech University's Ludic Pedagogy Lab. I'm your host, Rich Little, college instructor and Ludic Lab fellow. The Ludicast exists to spread the word about Ludic Pedagogy, an instructional model developed by Dr. Sharon Larisella and Dr. Keith Edmonds. It's designed to cultivate joy of learning through fun as an intrinsic motivator on the ludicast we have conversations with college university and industry educators about how and why they design their lessons using play playfulness and positivity you can find more at www.ludicpedagogylab.com that's l-u-d-i-c pedagogylab.com our guests today are dr lisa forbes and dr david thomas developers of professors at play a community serving as a positive, inviting, and playful space for people to share their experiences, develop their ideas, and get resources and inspiration about fun and play in higher education. They're also the editors of the soon-to-be-released Professors at Play, the playbook, showcasing a wide range of playful approaches to teaching. Lisa is an assistant clinical professor in the counseling program at the University of Colorado, Denver. She's a licensed professional counselor and a certified play therapist. Lisa's research centers around intensive mothering practices, gender conformity, mental health, and of course, play and fun in teaching and learning. David is the Executive Director of Online Programs at the University of Denver and Assistant Professor Attendant in the Department of Architecture at the University of Colorado, Denver. His research centers around fun, fun objects like buildings, and the meaning of play. Lisa and David, welcome to Ludacast. Hey, thanks for having us.
2: Glad you could take the, the time out of your day. And we've got lots to talk about today and not a ton of time. So I think what I'd like to start with is Professors at Play. And I think we'll start, I'm going to throw it to you, Lisa. What is Professors at Play and how did it come about?
3: So Professors at Play is a global community of faculty, um, mainly faculty, I would say, uh right now we have almost 800 members and it's just a community that values playful pedagogy, kind of thinking outside the box, using more novel and creative ways to teach students. Um so David and I had talked about making learning more fun, making teaching more fun, and we really didn't know what that looked like at first, so we started meeting and then we met, you know, one person here, another person there and we thought we should start a listserv so we can keep the conversation going and then I published a couple um, pieces with faculty focus and at the bottom I put here's this new listserv we have and then all of a sudden all these people started coming out of the woodwork we thought we were like the only ones that wanted to do this and apparently not a lot of people want to do it people have been doing it so it's just this amazing supportive group that we've kind of created and Just, we get a lot of joy and motivation and insight from them.
2: David, were you surprised that there was that kind of, uh, traction for professors at play? You know, honestly, I was. I, I
0: think, you know, when your, your local experiences, you know, you know, a couple of people on campus that are cool and are playful and you know, a lot of people that just kind of play in the traditional faculty role. Um, in retrospect, it makes a ton of sense because you know, if you find three, four, five people per campus, all of a sudden you've got hundreds, if not thousands, of, of participants. I think the thing that surprised me the most was how diverse it is. It's global, it's national, uh, it's in every discipline, it's at every rank and 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 type. And that's in, that's exciting to me. It's this isn't just the domain of, of school of education people or wacky history professors. It's it's not the domain of adjunct professors. Um, it's it's all over the place. And I think that the other thing that I realize is even outside of the professors at play community is um there's a, a secondary ring of enormous, enormous numbers of faculty who are open to this pedagogy. They just haven't quite identified themselves as a professor at play yet.
2: <laughs> no one wants to self-identify as a playful professor, maybe. It's
0: um, dangerous. It's dangerous, you know.
2: It can be dangerous. So I'm curious, Lisa. Were you always a playful professor or is this something that you just gravitated towards?
0: Well,
3: (laughs) I have a big issue with uh, tradition and status quo and it's, it tricks you into conformity. So I don't think I've always been a playful professor in action. I think at heart, I have always been that just my whole life I've been playful and just don't like to take myself too seriously. But I think getting in it into academia initially, I got tricked into the status quo of being this rigid, formal, lecturing faculty. Um, I think there's a lot of messages of like, be strict on the first day and then let them know who's in charge and, you know, other things like that. And so I got burned out pretty quickly and relatively soon. It was only a couple years in that I was like, this, I'm, don't enjoy teaching. This is draining me. And then actually I had met David. He was doing a talk on fun in higher education or fun in the workplace. And so I was like, well, that sounds, lack of a better word, fun. So I went to that. And then just the way he talked, it just like connected to something inside of me, that playful part within me. And I was like, okay, maybe teaching can be more fun. Maybe I can just create my own pedagogy and my own approach and just forget you know, the the narratives that tell me otherwise. So I think in some sense, I've always been this way. But um, it takes a little bit of rebellion and um, fighting back against what you're told you should be and should do that I've kind of found my way back to that internal state I've always had.
2: Do you think some of that comes from that? That conformity comes from, that's probably how you and I and David experienced higher education. So you just that default when you start and, and your story kind of resonates with mine and a lot of people I've talked to. When I, when I started, um, I assumed there would be these fun things that I could do. And when I went to the other, uh, instructors who were teaching my courses and I said, what kind of resources do you have? It was like, here's the textbook and here's the publisher's slides. Yeah. And, that's what it should be. <laughs> and, and I quickly realized that, wow, those PowerPoint slides are just the textbook. Yeah. Right? And so I defaulted to what I knew. Um, you know, after the first week, I was like, man, this is, I'm boring myself to death. How, and I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty engaging as an instructor. How can the students, I mean, they must just hate this. So I started to, to move on, but that was kind of, I just felt like that was the only thing. That's what I experienced. So that's, that's my default.
3: Yeah, I think it's modeled for sure, like you're saying, like we experience this education as a student and then we just kinda of do what we've seen and experienced. And I think also students are primed for that way of learning, sit and listen, Absolutely. take notes, just be a passive learner. And so I've found trying some of these things initially, students are like, What? Do we have to? They, Is there they're marks?
2: not What are the marks for this?
3: Yeah, right. They're like, "Is it? what's the rubric? And yeah. um, they're just not used to it. So I think for me it's been conversations with students and trying new things, and my students love it now. But, yeah, I think it's like um habits and modeling. And sometimes I wonder if we even question why we do what we do and is this really effective. Sometimes I think maybe we don't.
2: <laughs> well, and I think part of that is a lot of us don't like to fail. Um, And when you try something new, you have to be vulnerable and bring the students along. Uh, Yeah. That that can be scary.
3: The vulnerability piece, I think, is huge, too, doing something other than standing behind a podium.
2: David, I I was a little daunted when I reached out to you, too, number one, because um, I understand that you are known as the professor of fun. So same same question to you. Were you always the professor of fun, or is that something you uh, gravitated towards?
0: Yeah, self self-nominated professor of fun, um, and I'll take on all comers. I'll outfund them. Um, you know, I want to roll back to just a, a, a bit and just sort of say that that part of the problem culturally, particularly in higher ed, with playfulness, is that it's really associated with privilege. And so, white male professor, you're given a lot more permission to be playful, especially if you happen to have a you know a full professorship, which I don't. So, so I think that um we already kind of encourage men to be more playful. Like, that's kind of just considered like, okay, you know, like, wacky guy, that's cool. We have all these images of that. So I think I've always been attracted to more, you know, kind of playful things. Um, you know, I've, I've always had a less serious streak. I mean, but I think a little bit, I'm, I'm a bit like Lisa where it was just kind of like, in other words, a time and a place for it. When I did my, my research and, and got my degree in architectural history, I was bound to determine to have a thesis topic that would be relatable to people. So I decided to study what makes places fun. So I kind of early on stuck a, 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 you know, a flag on the ground and said, I'm going to study fun. And I've been emboldened to just be like, the parts of fun that seem trivial to me are childish. Lisa beat those out of me pretty quick. She's like, no, this stuff is really, really important. And that's another part of the story that eventually has to get told, which is people's encounter with play is that it's for other people. It's for people that can get away with it. It's for people with power. Um, It's for what you do um on a Friday right before Thanksgiving in class. It's, you know, it's not what you embody ongoing. And and it's because it's 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 a a belief that it's there's no efficacy to it. It's just for engagement. It's just for delight. And as as Lisa and I have worked on this, um, and again, you know, she's a she's a counseling professor. I would say you should have a friend who's a counseling professor because to get to the heart of the matter, and she got to the heart of the matter, which is like, no, David, this isn't trivial. This is fundamental. And so, professors at play has really morphed from being just a chance to feel safe about play to really being a platform. Of really saying this is absolutely fundamental and the transformation is essential. And I know I just opened up 50 doors, but that's what we care about,
2: right? And I and I think it's well known that that's how we learn when we start exploring the world. Uh, that's how animals learn. It's through play and experimentation. And I find sometimes with my students you have to give them the green light to go ahead. No, this is okay. It, it's okay to be silly, as though although you know I have to be very careful how I use those words when I'm talking to. Other folks in higher ed because no one wants to admit to being silly. When I look at why things are the way they are, I quite often will go to the definition and play. When I looked up the definition of play, it says engaging in an activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. And I think that's just wrong, which I, I would imagine that your definition of play, I really struggle with it, but I don't know. Does either one of you have a, have a definition of play that you like?
3: <laughs> that's funny you ask because I've been kind of tortured by that as well. I've done a lot of reading in the literature, like, what even is play? How do we agree on this? There's little agreement, and some people are even repulsed by the thought of trying to define play. So I, in my weirdo mind, decided to run a Delphi study with play experts for that very reason, to see if they could agree on a definition of play. They had very little agreement, just to let you know, but... um, I think from that study, what I got a sense of is there's this basic idea of play, which is what you just read, but you can harness the powers of play for a purpose. Some play experts would cringe at that for a purpose because play is purposeless and for joy. But like play and learning, it's fun, it's joyful, but we're harnessing it for a purpose to get students engaged, to ignite their their brains in a different way, to help them learn on a deeper level. So (laughs) I don't know if that answers your question, but I think sometimes it's confusing the definition because it says it's purposeless, but sometimes we use it for a purpose. So I don't know. I think kind of that that simple definition you read is what I know of it, but then we can use it for reasons.
2: Right. David, do you have anything to add to that in terms of a definition of what play is, or or is that part of the problem Is we're trying to define it too much?
0: Uh, you know I mean it's it's a little bit like uh you, you know the old uh Supreme Court decision about pornography. It's like I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it you know um not to equivocate the play in pornography. it's just a famous line from the legal history um but um my problem is is that I approach all this from a theory standpoint and as a as an academic i'm I'm loath to to give you a, a quick and simple answer but i I would say that for me it comes closer to this. I think play is the activity that we voluntarily engage in in the pursuit of fun, which pushes then the meaning towards the word fun, which your your viewers can't see. You have this big sign over your head pointing to your head that says fun, <laughs> which I love. And I think that fun is, and this is really the focus of my study, is is a is an aesthetic form like beauty. It has some of the same problems with definition that beauty has, but um, fun is really about. Um, Autonomy, freedom, meaning making, and, and kind of a, a liberty to explore. And so, um, I, I think that you know, in the simplest way, you, you know, you're playing. Your successful plays when you're having fun, and 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 to me, you can't erase fun and play together. And again, I'll just put it on a footnote to make you crazy. This is the fundamental critique I have of gamification. There's nothing wrong with gamification, but if it's not fun, it's not play.
2: Right. And, and we, I have to be careful because I don't want to go on forever because we could. But some of the, some people have issues with gamification because it, we're, we're talking about fun. So A, fun is not to, to cliche ourselves to death here, but really fun's in the eye, uh, the eye of the beholder. It, it is different for everyone. What I think is fun, you might not. So when we talk about fun, that's one of the things with ludic pedagogy is that's what we're after because fun is an intrinsic motivator. So if we go back to gamification, a game can be fun if you lose yourself in it and it, and it, you're intrinsically motivated. You're not, you're not trying to get the badges and, and, uh, the points along with it. That's something that's, that's nice, but really you just don't, you enjoy the challenge and you enjoy on figuring out that next level. How do I get to the next level? And that's one of the things when going back to what Lisa was talking about in terms of that definition of play. I stumbled across something that, that Heidi Neck of Batson College talks about and it's the escalation of play which is you can start with very unstructured uh, free play, which there is no win-loss scenario. You're just, you're just doing it for the purpose, which could simply just be an icebreaker at the start of class. And then you can scaffold that up to really serious play, and that could be games with clear win-loss scenarios. So there isn't one type of play. It's better to talk about the different types of play and when we would use them, because I believe that we should be intentional with our play. Um regardless of what it is, we, it, like David said, we don't just do it, uh, Friday afternoons because no one likes that 2.30 slot. Um so we'll just play a game. And I'm fine with that if that game connects to the material somehow. Mm-hmm. Um so that's, that's, that's great. So what about, uh, rigor? So I'm assuming that you've had pushback, both of you have had pushback kind of like I have, that play can't, you know, academics, especially in higher ed, we have to be rigorous. It has to be difficult and hard. And I find that so strange because I am a past competitive athlete and you know, I love playing games, but they can be difficult and hard. And to me, that's, that's part of the fun. So when we talk about rigor, have you had that kind of pushback and what do you think uh, about rigor in higher, higher uh, education?
3: Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest critiques of what we talk about with play and teaching and playful pedagogy. Um, I think when I first mention it to people, they're kind of like, mm, okay. And they you know, pat me on the head. That's cute. Um, but the more I talk about it and really what it is, people see it differently. And so I think I have a hard time when people can understand that play can coexist along with professionalism, or we can play and be rigorous. And so I think if play actually allows us to be more rigorous, in my belief, some people say, I don't have time for play because I have so many objectives to reach. But I think play actually accelerates learning and deepens learning. And so you can actually get students to learn more quicker on a deeper level and expect them to be rigorous and still have those high expectations. But there's less barrier to the play, to the learning with play. They're less stressed out. They're more willing. They're more motivated. They're more engaged. They're more willing to hear the, the constructive feedback that's hard to hear sometimes. So it just makes me laugh when people dismiss it because they have too much to do or it's not rigorous, quote unquote. I just think people don't get what it is really. And maybe we could get to this later because I want David to share his thoughts on this, but When we first started this, Professors at Play, I was about making it more fun. I wanted students to be more engaged because I hated throwing out a discussion question. and It was crickets. So, but as we've dug into this more, I've done some research on this, writing on this, you know, what we've learned with our community. It's more than an activity. We think of it as activities, but we also think of it as a way of being ourselves. And we also think of it as like this broader philosophy. And I even see it something not only we do in the classroom, but, like, it's a philosophy that can fundamentally change higher education, you know, overall. So we can probably get back to that, but nothing well, that's
2: that. Well, no, and that's a, a, a great place to get into something that just, as you were talking about it, just made me think, so I'm going to throw this question to David, because I think both of you have talked about the structure and the conformity in in higher education. And the way that students have been con- have been conditioned that it's all about grades, and I think that and David, would you agree with this? And this just came to me that play, and, and Lisa, your research may bear this out. That what play does is it breaks down those barriers. So if we can be play playful and engage in play and be positive, that that fear of failure, the fear of being wrong, um, and that stress level that comes along with higher education drops a little so students are more open to constructive criticism or even trying something
0: new. This is probably the appropriate place to introduce a concept that's really central to this that it's it's hard for people to see sometimes. But um as Lisa and I worked on this, we coined this term fun equals love, which is like super hippie scary. Um but it, it came really from reading um the work of Barbara Friedrichson and Friedrichson is a psychologist who studies positive emotions so that's just that's her field and she came to the conclusion that love was the penultimate positive emotion so she wrote a book called love 2.0 specifically to say hey this notion that love is only romantic or potentially familial is just wrong because when she looks at the the underlying psychological factors that what the state of love looks like in terms of like biochemical synchronization looking out for the well-being of each other Um, She says it happens with strangers when the home team scores a touchdown and everybody high-fives each other or when you kind of share a knowing glance when something funny happens on the bus. She says love, that, that, that penultimate feeling can happen at many different levels and scales. And what Lisa and I realized looking at this is that her psychological description of two people sharing this love emotion was identical to play and And you know, we haven't done any like research deep research on this, but just to notice the self symmetry of what we have been describing as fun and what she was describing as love really opened up this door and started to say, "Oh, um, two people throwing a ball back and forth having a conversation. we'd look at that as play, but she would look at it as this penultimate positive emotion, so yeah." Why wouldn't you want to bring that kind of level of human connection into your classroom? Because we know there is enormous amounts of research that feeling connected to, you know, your education, feeling connected in your educational environment is probably the number one factor that determines outcomes of success, right? It's very, very difficult to succeed if you're not socially situated in a positive environment. So Lisa and I wrap all that up and just say fun equals love because it's a strong, strong reminder that yeah, fun can be really engaging. It's really engaging because all of a sudden everybody drops their agenda and they're smiling at each other and they're sharing joy. Of course that's engaging, right? I mean that's just like that's a that's why we go to see professional sports, right? So we can all yay together, ah oh, together, so we can have feelings with people, you know. And so I think that the the, the bringing that into the classroom, it almost seems completely ridiculous and backwards that it's absent because that should be the first thing that the faculty members should be encouraging. And we're not taught how to do it or not encouraged to do it and rarely are we compensated to do it. So of course it's a revolution. It's a revolution in just saying you're holding it backwards. Turn it around, you know, that's threatening. It's just threatening and in the best, most amazing way i can think of
3: and i think that's like kind of going back to your question what david was just describing is like the foundation of what we want to an environment that we want to cultivate to get all of the outcomes we want so if we want to be rigorous we have to have that environment if we want students to learn a lot we have to have that environment if we want them to be engaged we have to have that environment so i think in my study the student said with play, I felt less focused on the grade and more just enjoying the process. I wanted to learn and I wanted to challenge myself because it didn't feel scary and it didn't feel like if I failed that I would really fail or like I would be ridiculed or embarrassed. And so I think, I think it's kind of like this stepping stone build up to everything we want and we allow students to not worry about grades or rubrics or points. And they can just learn and more freely, you know, learn on on what they want to learn and on a deeper level. So I think with that, they can be more creative and they can take more risks. And like grading, don't have, don't even get us started on grading, but that's a problem too. And so I I take more of like a not quite ungrading approach. I'm still working on that, but I think for me, I allow students submit what you want, do it, you know follow these guidelines we have to learn certain things but sometimes I give them flexibility to submit it in a way that's meaningful for them and if they missed something I'll give them really I give them very detailed feedback and then from that feedback they can choose to resubmit so there's like no pressure that like if I submit this and I get you know a failing grade that's my grade because I'm like that's not the point of learning the point of learning is like Deepening your understanding, going back, revising things, failing, learning from that, doing it again. So I think play sets the foundation for that, where traditional approaches to education are more rigid and punitive, and students are afraid, and they're afraid to work outside the rubric and the box. And then what learning is happening? They're just checking off a box, jumping through hoops just to leave university. So it's just – I just don't see – any argument for why playful pedagogy isn't good?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> but I'm buy <biased. laughs> it. There's so many things that that just that just popped into my head with that discussion, and I think the first thing that that struck me there is that David was talking is quite often we don't get compensated to do that, and that compensation isn't always monetary. It's simply being recognized and thanked for what you do.
0: It's a good, it's a good insight and, and I mean it's, it's the reality of it. it, you know. I mean we're paid to teach classes and, and teach with quotes around. It. People are always asking us define play. I'd say define teach. Like what actually are you doing? Because if teaching is what, what we think it is, it means your job is to show up two or three times a week and make sure the students show up and assign grades. That's teaching, which sounds completely insane when you say it out loud. You know, if teaching was Hey, Richard, your compensation is linked to the 20-year career satisfaction and happiness of your students. Maybe you would teach differently.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We, we need to take our graduate surveys out farther than five years then.
0: And, and pay you if, you if you have people that like you, and enjoyed, and feel like you were relevant.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that takes us down a road, David, that I'm, I'm sure there'd be lots of arguments uh, about that and uh, perverse incentive. For sure, for
0: sure. (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to be completely like just a pain in the neck. I just, I'm, I'm saying that like, you know, one of the reasons we're afraid to bring playful pedagogy in is because we have a pretty weak sense of what the purpose of teaching is. And we use terms like transformation, which is a good word, but what does that mean? How do you know that it happened? You know, I always ask people that are my age, that, you know, grew up the very traditional higher ed and say, What made the biggest difference to you in higher ed? And and invariably, it's like I had a personal relationship with a professor. I was deeply involved in an activity or a sport, right? It's like, it's not like, man, I really remember that English 202 class, right? And so you start to think about it. You're like going, well, it's these deep, meaningful human connections that that change us, shape us, and move us forward. So why aren't we doing that in the classroom? Why isn't that the goal? And, and again, I don't think Lisa and I are arrogant enough to say that play is the only mechanism to do that. But I will tell you this. There's a million years of evolution that has brought play to the forefront because it's really good at that. So why would we dismiss it?
2: Let's talk a little bit about your practice of teaching because I know you both teach, and I'm interested in in how and what you do. And, and Lisa, you have to tell me about Giraffes Can't Dance.
3: (laughs) Oh, man. so. I mean, it's a playful approach to a typical case study that we would do training counselors in our program. So case studies are common, but they're not very novel. Students are kind of bored by them, to be honest. So I was thinking how to make a case study more novel, more students more engaged in it, and it just be more fun and playful. So David and I actually do this Creativity activity we called the worst idea ever. And it came from when we started doing this, I was having a really hard time thinking outside of the box of traditional education. Every time I tried to think of a playful idea, it was within the box and I just was getting frustrated. So David said, well, think of the worst idea ever and do that. And he was kind of like kidding, but we started using it. So we sit there and think, okay, you know, how can I come up with the worst idea ever to do this one thing, and you start brainstorming all these things. So my worst idea ever was to sit, not ever, this is actually a less worse idea than some of the other ones, but sit my master's students down on the carpet crisscross applesauce and read them for the entire three hours, children's books, one after the other, that have no relation to counseling. And so that's pretty bad. That wouldn't really have any point. I mean, it would be probably fun, but... And then I was like, well, what if could I use a children's book in my teaching, just not have them act treat them like kindergartners? So one night I was reading the book Giraffes Can't Dance to my kids and it's about poor Gerald, he's a giraffe and every year they do this like animal dance and all the animals are so good at dancing but he can't dance because he's awkward and has these long limbs and they make fun of him and um tell him he's so weird and then he feels bad about himself and he says he's a clot. And he can't do anything right, so I was like, this would be a really good case study for my students to apply their theoretical lens and like through your lens, how do you view this client, and how would you work with this client and so that's kind of how it came about and so i turned I read them the book in class, drafts can't dance, and then I googled um facts about drafts and then turned those facts into potential reasons why someone would pursue counseling. So I read the book. I give them this client profile, which is Gerald, and there's a picture of Gerald the Giraffe on there, and then each group gets in the different theoretical lens, so like cognitive behavioral, narrative therapy, existential therapy, and in their groups, they have to use their um, lens, their theoretical lens, to make sense of this case, to treatment plan, to figure out what direction to, you know, work with this client. So it's fun. It's novel. The students... They engage with it. They think it's funny, but it's also serious. They're also really applying the skills they need to know as a counselor. But what I found is if it's completely serious, it's a, you know, Jane such-and-such client, they get almost kind of stuck with their thinking because there's it's within the box, so there's a, quote-unquote, right way to treat this client. They think Mm -hmm. I'm looking for a certain answer. But when it's a giraffe, nobody's counseled a giraffe before, so it kind of frees their thinking to kind of think more outside the box and um, creatively about how we can treat this client still in a meaningful way that we would treat a human. So it's just a fun thing that I do, just one example, but um,
0: students love it.
2: David, same question to you. What's your favorite lesson that that you you do in class?
0: Oh, boy. I mean, a lot of ideas come to mind. I mean the first thing I have to admit is that Lisa is, is way more creative than I am in, in implementing fun in her classes. And I think part of it is because again, you know, I mean you can't see me on the podcast, but you know, I'm an older white guy with a bunch of white hair, a professor, Doctor Thomas, and so you know, I can just be light and people like loosen up, you know, and, and, and that's just a privilege that I have. And I have relied on that of just being funny. Um so I've had to really dig in and I just I'm sometimes admitting this because I think sometimes people think some people are just playful, right? And I, I think that's there's a little truth to that, but I think it's mostly it's like any other technique, you commit to it, right? One of my favorites is um I teach a class called the architecture of fun, which you know, by any measure should be fun. And um what I found was that the students were in the same kind of um box that Lisa was talking about that telling young architectures or you know, would be architects to play, they were so used to like getting it wrong or get, you know, getting something that would be too far out there and getting a getting slapped down and critique that they weren't doing a very good job. And sort of recognizing this, I did exactly the same thing. I didn't use worse technique either. I just said, look, here's this theoretical framework for designing fun things. So today in class, I want you to forget about architecture. I am a business owner. I own a hamburger shop and uh, sales aren't doing great. I need you, these groups divide up. I need you to come up with ways to make the hamburger more fun. And I've heard you have this theory. I want you to apply the theory to making the hamburger fun. Boom, like night and day. All of a sudden, they're coming up with gold-plated hamburgers and inside-out hamburgers and like crazy flavor hamburgers. And it was like, it was like it was in them. Like they didn't, it's not like all of a sudden the theory made sense. It's all of a sudden they didn't feel afraid to apply the theory. And so, you know, in the debrief, I'm like, okay, so now you're not allowed to come up with really boring ideas for architecture because you know how this works. And, you know, again, it was, it was injecting playfulness. And I think what's super ironic is it was a playful class in the first place. I really had to turn it up to 11 just to get them to actually have some fun. One other quick example I would just give you because, um, You know, I was teaching this synchronous undergrad class, same thing, architecture of fun, and Lisa has encouraged me to do wacky, you know, connection form or icebreakers at the beginning of class. And so for the first few weeks of just doing them, everybody was like kind of like, these are weird in the middle of class. They're like, they're, you know, they seem kind of neutral about them. And then we kind of got later in the class, and honestly, I was just running out of steam, and I forgot one morning to do it. And they were like, um, where's the icebreaker? And that's when I realized Students aren't necessarily demonstrative about their feelings about the class, but as soon as I took the play away, they're like, hang on a second, not allowed. You bring it back right now. I was like, okay, yeah, thank you, thank you, I did. So One other thing I'd like to to say about that student kind of efficacy, that that non-visibility sometimes of the effect of these things is, I, I won't make Lisa describe it herself, but I have been a student of her faculty course questionnaires because when you read the feedback on them, Students are in love with her teaching and her class, and it's not in spite of fun. It's because of fun. I mean, she is a great teacher and has always had good reviews, but they've basically just pegged out since she incorporated play. So the rigor is there, the content achievement is there, but now there's a joy in learning that was not there. And, And I think that that's just like the evidence is irrefutable that this stuff works. And yeah. I think
3: going, Go going back to the rigorous conversation, as both of you were talking about, each week I prepare this thing before class. That's a lot of work. And so one week you forgot because you were busier. You had, you know, didn't have time. And so I think it's funny when people say, well, I need to be rigorous. I can't play. Actually, I think play is being more rigorous. And in my student feedback at the end of the semester, it's very common that I'll get a comment of like, You put so much energy and effort into this class, and it's noticed, and your passion for teaching is noticed. So isn't that rigorous? Putting energy and effort into every single, you know, lesson plan and making it um, unique and playful and meaningful, that's rigorous to me because students are engaged. They're going to learn on a deeper level. But using the same PowerPoints year after year and not really you know putting much thought into it or novelty into it, that's not really rigorous, right? and if we're just teaching what the they read in the textbook last night, is that rigorous? So I don't know, maybe we all need to sit down and have a conversation about what we mean here because <laughs> i don't I don't get it. <laughs>
0: play and fun are always about meaning making and and not receiving wisdom and just understanding something it's about making your own meaning and that that can be scary in, inside of disciplines that think they have truth, but <laughs> I think these, are the most disciplines I understand they're very complex and so um keeping, developing a, a sense of inquiry in students is critical and I, I, that's to put too fine a point on it, but you cannot have fun and not make meaning. They're not, they don't, they don't exist. If we wanted to find professors at play, where would we find
2: professors at play? You have a on presence there, on the yeah. web.
0: Yeah, what's yeah. our, what's our web address? professors at org. We're easy to find.
3: Professors at Play lives within each of us. (laughs) (laughs) Just look
0: inside.
3: We got the website. We got um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, social media accounts, and we have a YouTube channel. We record all of our events and post them there, so pretty accessible, I'd say.
2: So you have events as well, and I think that's the Playposium?
3: Yeah, we have held two Playposiums um, so far. They were virtual due to pandemic stuff. And then we have some kind of one-off workshop talk kind of situations that people can come to and we're looking in the future to plan an in-person playposium so next year that'll be kind of in the works.
2: Okay. And so there's also resources on your website, I believe.
0: Yeah, we've been a little slow to update them as we worked on the playbook um but uh yeah. We try to put anything useful up there. We try we'll post this podcast so that people can find it. If you're listening to it, you don't need to go find it on the website, but you can find other podcasts are there. Oh, that's a good segue. Tell us a little
2: bit about the playbook. What's the what's the format of the book?
0: Um, it's an encyclopedia of of play techniques. So the, the context, first of all, is this. Um, as, as we kind of continue this outreach and try to encourage people to become more playful as professors, um, I think the number one request is techniques, right? People want to they want to know, they want ideas. And and as you mentioned, the, the best PD is the professor down the hall. Well, our hallway now is just, you know, the whole world. So we challenged our community to send us techniques that we could share, A, to stimulate thought, like, hey, that's a cool technique. I could build on that. Also for people to be like, oh, wow, here's somebody in veterinarian medicine doing this really cool technique. Maybe I'm working in nursing, but I can see a relevance, You know, it's not just, you know, business games or whatever. So we collect all these techniques. The, the, we divided them into four categories, and this is important because we kind of see a range. Um, the first set of techniques is just what we call the, the playful professor. It's things that individuals do to embody playfulness, to demonstrate playfulness. And, you know, it could be everything from, like, literally dressing up in costumes or a walk-up song would be, you know, one. Um, to, to much simpler things about just demeanor and, and approach. The second category is connection formers or icebreakers, because that's kind of that's 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 the starter. You know, have, people are willing. I'm going to teach chemistry the way I've always taught it, but I might do a fun opener. The next technique category is um, techniques, playful techniques that teach content. So this would be kind of like where a lot of the gamification stuff would go. But our professors are much more interesting. Using magic tricks to teach concepts you, you know the hamburgers in there, using balloons and fly swatters to teach content and and again the gir- Gerald the giraffe is another one of those examples that's in there and then finally, we have whole course design and this is the the ultimate where you actually your whole course is designed around a playful concept, and um, we have some really good examples of that too and and I'm not saying that that every course should be like a game but There's clearly a benefit to designing an entire course around playful concepts. And then there's a bunch of other wraparound content to kind of make sense of all of that. And so the book is is almost done. It's coming out on ETC Press. I don't want to say in the next 30 days, but it's not impossible that it will be out that soon.
3: In addition, I think it's like we describe our understanding of playful pedagogy as we understand it right now. A lot of techniques to give examples. We were hesitant to put out a technique book because play is so much more than, you know, being reduced to a technique or an activity. But it's something to start with or let people in on what this can look like. And I think a lot of it is just giving people permission to play and seeing like, oh, this is happening. Maybe this is something I can do that's not, you know, totally... Wild and out there idea. So I think a lot of it is permission, and just hopefully sparking some interest or creativity and innovation of your own. Like maybe these individual techniques might not work for your class, but it can give you ideas that are more outside of the box.
0: One thing that's important to add here too is um, the book's being put out on Carnegie Mellon's ETC Press, which is amazing press because you can buy this giant tome, but it will be available as a as a as a free resource too. So people that don't want to download or don't want to buy a 300-page book on play, can still download it for free and look at it.
2: Wow, that's that's uh that's very generous.
0: It's a, I think, the future scholarship,
2: <laughs> but I th- I think it's important because that format works. I think because we've talked about no no real hard and fast definition for fun and play. Everyone teaches different subjects. They all have different personalities. They all have different comfort levels. And I think it's, like you said, you talked about earlier, when I talk to people down the hall, quite often it's, well, just
0: tell me about your class. Tell me what you do. Super critical to this whole campaign to increase play is that you need partners. Uh, You need a, you know, I need Lisa to remind me not to fall back on old habits, you know. She needs Mm -hmm. me to ask her, how did your new technique go? I mean, you need a community of people. It's like we think our students are the only people learning, uh, you Mm -hmm. know we need our people too, and so it's really important to us that people are finding that partner, that that, that group of people that are kind of egging each other on, you know, to take that jump off that really high scary cliff.
3: I think that's really important because being a playful professor is not typical in my experience. I think now it feels more typical because we have such a huge mass of faculty in, in our listserv, but Sometimes it feels alienating, or you feel rejected, or people don't get it, or you know you're shot down for certain ideas. It's just not yet very welcomed in academia, in my opinion. So I think you, can, I can get discouraged pretty quickly, or you know what's the point of this? Or is this, you know, is this sustainable? Can I do this? So having David and the other faculty on the list serve being there as cheerleaders and advocates and Inspiration is essential, I think.
2: Yeah, in and in a community of practice, whether you call it a community of practice or it's just a group of like-minded folks is so important. And I teach in the business uh, school and it, I find it interesting because we know that the idea of that singular brilliant person developing a business in their garage by themselves is a myth, right? But that persists and my view, and it was my view when I was in industry, is that, you know, we can't do this alone. And if I'm going to spend that much time, eight hours a day with my coworkers or 80 hours, 60 to 80 hours with my students, there needs to be fun and it needs to be playful. Otherwise, it just becomes drudgery for for all of us. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is, that's so appropriate that we need to find, we need to seek out those folks like professors at play Ludic pedagogy, whatever resonates with you to keep you going.
0: But I think that I would start with the fact that the best part of playful teaching is it makes teaching fun again. And I look back, and the classes that I have hated the most teaching are the ones that I could teach in my sleep. With no prep, just walk in. It's just, you know, every time I tear up a class and redo it and challenge myself to make it more fun, oh, my God, it's so much work, and I don't regret a minute of it. And then it's actually fun to teach. And so I would say, if you hate teaching that much, do something else, but if you just lost the joy of teaching, start playing it, it's like it's like you're a graduate student teaching again. you're like everything's exciting and challenging, and you feel great, great pride at its success
3: and I think it's for the students too, because it's like if you think about it, learning is this innate drive. We have a drive to learn and to be curious and to explore. Yet when we put students in formalized education, and at least how we've created it, learning sucks. It becomes this dry, boring thing you just have to slog through, and it creates mental health and well-being issues. What have we done to learning in education? It's a problem. So I think to kind of restore that innate drive and get people excited about learning again, I think Clay is definitely the avenue for that.
2: I think that's probably a, a great place to stop is there anything you want to um add anything that maybe i've missed in terms of what's important about what you do about playful professor um or anything under the playful pedagogy banner
0: i would just say you know go to the website go to professors sign up for the mail list stay in touch um you know we're 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 collaborators we're trying to bring more people together um if you're new to this try something dumb this week you know Get out of yeah. your comfort zone. Dumb. <laughs> like it's the worst idea ever. Just, oh. just try it, you know. I mean, I don't. Professors need to to feel a little of uh, the, the the danger of teaching again. And um, and if you run out of ideas, shoot us an email. I'll give you a ten bad ideas you can do tomorrow.
3: I would say it's easy to reject and dismiss something that you don't quite understand, and I think that happens a lot. So, if you're skeptical. Are you're not sure how to do it, learn a little bit more about it before you think it's not for you. Because I think there's a lot of power using play and being playful. So I think it's understanding what it really is, getting examples of what it can look like, and then kind of overcoming barriers for yourself of what keeps you from doing this. And that's a personal process. But change doesn't happen overnight. So I always tell people You know, learn a little bit about it and try one thing this semester that's playful in your class. See how it goes. And then, you know, you can pick up some steam. So I think just I have a problem when people just outright reject it without taking a second to hear about it.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Ludicast. Make sure to visit us at www.ludicpedagogylab.com. That's L-U-D-I-C pedagogylab.com to comment on the podcast, and for more detailed information about ludic pedagogy and associated resources. Until next time, remember, life is short. Make sure to have serious fun. Special thanks to Jeff Timischuk of Greenwire Music, who composed the musical theme for the Ludicast.